Tēnā koutou no mai haere mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Today we ask the Corrections Minister about the impacts of lowering the prison population. Then National Health Spokesperson Shane Reti is promising to help turn around the health system. He's here live. And we ask British historian Sir Simon Sharma why vaccinations are still so contentious. I mean, if you think about the vocabulary, in Britain, we call it a jab. In the United States, it's called a shot. We'll have that interview shortly. But we begin this morning with Thursday's fatal shooting in the Auckland CBD. The Corrections Department is reviewing the handling of the man responsible who was on home detention when he carried out the attack. Since coming to power in 2017, Corrections Minister Calvin Davis has overseen a deliberate and significant reduction in prisoner numbers in New Zealand. I sat down with the minister and began by asking what specific inquiries he made of his department following Thursday's attack. First of all, we need to acknowledge the, the victims. Uh, it's a tragic event. Uh, it's not something that you know, we ever want to see in New Zealand. So my heart goes out to uh, those people who were the immediate victims, their, their whanau. Uh, in terms of uh, the assurances that I've sought from corrections, there is a, a chief probation officer is doing a review or an investigation into what has gone on. I needed to know in the first instance when I heard that something had gone on, whether or not there had been any uh, corrections involvement with the person. It turns out there, there has been. Um, but we need to let those investigations run their courses. There's no point making assumptions or presumptions about um, any part of it. I think we need to leave the professionals to, to go about their investigation and then we will respond to the results of those investigations. Matu Reid beat his girlfriend so seriously that she fractured her neck. He kicked her, slapped her, threw a wine bottle and scissors at her head and strangled her for 10 seconds, which for the victim would have been a terrifying period of time. Is it your expectation that someone convicted of those kinds of crimes can be on home detention? Well, the first thing is, is again, acknowledge um, the experience that his victim went through, and that is horrible, and that is just something that you, you, know, you and I cannot imagine, that level of violence. But we also have to remember that judges make decisions about what happens to offenders. The, the offender turns up in court, the judge makes the decision as the Minister of Corrections. We have to live with the judge's decision and make sure uh, that the person's time under corrections care is, um, is done correctly. Right, but I mean, you, you're part of a government that essentially sets the laws which decides the kinds of sentences that criminals receive. So is it your expectation that someone who would commit those kinds of crimes could be released on home detention. Look, again, it's really a matter for um, the judge who, may, who hears all the evidence, who um, is there through the court process and the judge makes the decision. And as politicians, we actually have to be very careful about, um, you know, reacting to, uh, to what judges do. There is a reason why, you know, the courts and politicians need to remain separate. Why did the government introduce a new crime of non-fatal strangulation? Yeah, because uh, we know that uh, strangulation, and I believe that came in under the previous government, which we uh, would have agreed to, uh, because strangulation is a precursor to, to further uh, family violence. So it is important that, uh, that that is acknowledged, but again, it is a judge that hears all the evidence and makes decisions as to what needs to happen to the perpetrator. Non-fatal strangulation is recognised internationally as a high risk factor for future harm, including a much higher risk of killing someone. 
Why should anyone convicted of that crime be allowed to serve their sentence on home detention rather than in prison? Look, again, you know, I, I don't want to um, pre-empt a judge's um, uh, decisions. They, they make the decisions based on the evidence that they have in front of them. You're saying the government bears no responsibility in the kinds of sentences that people receive? Uh, what I'm saying is that judges hear the evidence, they are there, they make the decisions based on what is put in front of them. Mm. Um, if that person had have gone to prison to serve his sentence, then as a politician we have to accept that that is the decision. How many violent offenders are currently on home detention? Uh, look, I don't have that uh, level of detail here. Um, but again, if there is somebody on home detention, that is because a judge has put them on home detention. Should violent offenders be on home detention, in your opinion? Well, without wanting to sound... There, there are levels of violence, and again, the judges will make their decisions based on the level of violence. Mm. Uh, my role as the Minister of Corrections is mm. to make sure that any prisoner complies with the conditions of their sentence. Mm. But, but in your role as the Minister of Corrections, you have been a staunch advocate in reducing the prison population and increasing the prevalence of electronic monitoring. Is that correct? Well, in terms of uh, uh, the decrease in the prison population, when we became government, there was a, a prison population crisis. There were literally about a dozen beds left in the whole system. So we probably only needed one weekend of uh, a number of arrests and there would have been, we'd have been having to look at triple bunking, people being uh, bunked in uh, hallways. Or, uh, there was even discussions around um, commissioning closed boarding schools. Now that was something that I don't think that the community and uh, New Zealand would have accepted. So there had to be something else. The, the building of more prisons was always going to take a number of years. The prison population uh, from 2015 uh, for the next three years grew at an exponential rate, almost a 50% increase. If it had carried on at the same rate, we'd have had over 14,000 people in prison, but at the, at the present time we've only got about 11,500 beds. So there was a crisis in um, that. So, so how much has the use of electronic monitoring increased since Labor came to power in 2017? Well, uh, it only started towards the end of the last government. So, of course, there was always going to be a build-up of the number of people who would be electronically monitored. But as the but prison population's come down, electronic monitoring has increased. So there's electronic monitoring and there's home detention. That, uh, now, I'll get them mixed up, but one has gone down significantly since, we, since about December of 2017. The other has gone up. This is part of your response to, to, the, to the, what you saw as a crisis in terms of prison numbers. You wanted to see the number of people being monitored at home increase in the number of people in prison come down? Well, we wanted to look at a range of factors. So, for example... But that was one, right? Well, it is one, and it came in before our time. And, I, again, I don't determine who gets electronic monitoring. I don't determine who gets home detention. But, see, there's a number of things that Corrections has done. For example, the judge is looking at somebody uh, who, who might be bailed, but the only f they've met all the criteria except for the fact that, that they don't have somewhere safe to live... Corrections has gone out and created a whole heap of um, 
uh, supported living situations in the community, about 300 beds, so that the judge can make a decision about someone being bailed to a safe place. So there's been a number of things that Corrections has done to support judges to make decisions as to whether or not to bail or not to. So you've reduced the prison population since you came into power by about 20%. Do you consider that a success? Look, uh, what's more important to me is the fact that uh, the uh, reconviction rates have gone down, I think, by 11% and the re-imprisonment rates by about 8%. That shows that what we are doing is working. You said in a speech to the Labor Congress last month, quote, we have safely reduced the prison population. What evidence do you have that Kiwis are safer as a result of that drop? Uh, well, there is a reduction in offending. Everybody has to realise that the crime rate is going down. If you look at the spike in, um, in youth crime, for example, RAM raids, I saw a Herald article saying that RAM raids are 0.38% of all offending, and yet it's consuming 100% of our, um, of our, our, our headspace. Mm. Uh, so we have to look at the overall situation that overall crime is going down, Violent crime is um, is going up, but we also have to look at... So violent crime's going up. And you've talked about making Kiwis safer, so, so, so I want to understand how reducing the prison population by about 20% has made Kiwis safer. Yeah, and the people who are committing violent crime are going to prison. So there's been an increase in the numbers of gang members. There's also... The demographics in prison has increased. Those people who commit crimes, who commit violent crimes, are going to prison. Well, they're, well, well, they're not, are safe. they? Because Matu Reid beat his former girlfriend so seriously that she fractured her neck. Yeah. And, like I say, the, the judge has made a decision that is going to be the but, centre. But the point, the point is that violent criminals aren't necessarily going to prison. Between 2017 and 2022, the number of serious assaults reported to police or reported by police increased 121%. Reports of acts intended to cause injury went up by almost 30%. What is the link between a lower prison population and higher rates of violent crimes? the link between a lower prison population and higher rates of violent crime. Well, one of the things that, that I think we need to look at is, and I've always said, the more people you put in prison, then the more people in the future you're going to have to put in prison. And if we look at the increase in the prison population from 2015 onwards, mm -hmm. the people we incarcerated, or the, the then government incarcerated people at a greater rate of knots, and we're wondering why there is a greater... And, you know, there are more people um, committing violent crime now. There is a but correlation. But you're the government. You've no, been not in government. 2015. Yeah, but you've been in government for six years now. And, and violent crime is up now since 2017. This is the period in which we're seeing... The same period in which the prison population has gone down, violent crime's gone up. Yeah. And that's on you. No, and, and that's what I'm saying. From 2015 onwards, the prison population went up by 3,000 people, and we wonder why there, there's, there's an impact... So you're blaming the... the violent crime now on the previous government that was booted out in 2017? If you, when you increase, the more people you incarcerate now, in the future, you will incarcerate more people. So in 2015, there was an increase in the prison population, and that means now we're dealing with the impact of that increase in the prison population as well. It, it's not just this government and that government. We've got to look at the whole picture over a period of time, and there was a distinct increase in the prison population under the National Act and Māori Party government previously, and now we're also dealing with uh, crime. Nobody's looking into that. We, everyone is looking just at, oh, this is happening in this period of time, but you've got to look at the, the impact 
of uh, policy decisions in the past as well because we're having an impact there, also having an impact now. So as Corrections Minister, do you take any responsibility for the increases in violent crime under your government? So I don't... The, as a Minister of Corrections, I have to make sure that the, that the people who are sent to prison, that they get the best um, treatment, care, so that when they emerge at the end of their sentence, whenever it may be, a best place... That hasn't answered the question. Do, do you take any responsibility for the increase in violent crime? Uh, as the Minister of Corrections, I'm doing my best to make sure that the people that come into the care of corrections emerge as contributing members of society. A big part of your driving force in reducing the prison population was to reduce the levels of Māori incarceration, which I think everyone agrees is a disgrace. So the overall number of Māori in prison has gone down, but the total percentage of Māori in prison has actually increased relative to other groups. Why is that? Yeah, that's been one of the difficulties because everything that we have done uh, in corrections has been aimed at, at targeting our uh, Māori prison population. And I guess the old saying that what's good for Māori is good for all New Zealanders uh, also holds true because what we're seeing is that uh, non-Māori are benefiting probably more than Māori, despite the fact that we are really targeting Māori strategies, such as the Māori pathways. Hōkairangi is, a, is the um, correction strategy. It started off as a Māori strategy. There was no Māori strategy in corrections, despite uh, over half the prisoners being Māori. So Hōkairangi, which was going to be a Māori strategy, became the whole strategy. It is having an impact, as we've seen. Um, there's about 850 fewer Māori in prison now. Um, but the way things were going, if we hadn't have done that, we we're going to see over 14,000 people in prison uh, at this point of time with only 11,000 beds, and that would have been unpalatable. Alvin Davis's office confirmed the exact numbers of electronic monitoring and home detention with us. So since 2017, the number of people on home detention has decreased slightly to 1,600 people. The use of electronic monitoring, which can be used in a wider range of situations, has increased slightly to about 12,000 people. After the break, Calvin Davis is determined to reduce youth offending. But if you're prepared to steal a car and ram-raid a business, how much does deterrence really work? Okimai, welcome back. As well as holding the corrections portfolio, Calvin Davis is the Minister for Children responsible for Oranga Tamariki. Since Labor came to power, the total number of young people in youth justice facilities has dropped 28%. But get this, the percentage of those in youth justice custody who are Māori has increased to more than 90%. Yeah, you heard that right, 90%. You've been the Children's Minister since 2020. The Children's Commissioner visited Te Puna Wai or Tuhina Poor, a facility in Christchurch in 2021. When they made a surprise follow-up visit the next year, their report found, quote, limited to no progress on their recommendations from the previous year. How is that acceptable? Well, it isn't. And uh, I have made it clear to Oranga Tamariki that it is not acceptable. Towards, uh, you know, later half part of last year, I uh, decided to visit the um, Australian um, equivalent, so I went there early this year. Uh, I, to look at their resources, to look at their facilities, to look at their models of care, uh, and to see what they're doing. And there are massive lessons to be learned. We can improve what we're doing. And one of the biggest things that I want to see, and I've been demanding it since uh, early this year, is the greater professionalisation of the workforce. Now, I haven't been happy with the, the rate of change. 
um, and recent changes are now we're starting to see progress but it, it is, is a disappointment to me that it has taken so long uh, for things to start to change. Three weeks ago video was released of young people in a youth detention facility under your watch participating in an MMA style fight. That is the second time it's happened. Why? Yeah, and it's totally unacceptable. Uh, there are issues around the recruitment of staff and uh, the fact that, if I can give a comparison, Corrections has had quite a significant um, uh, recruitment campaign. They've had over 5,000 uh, people apply, but only about 500 make the grade. Now, Oranga Tamariki, I don't say only about 10% make the grade of the total applications. Oranga Tamariki, I don't think that that's the case. I, if they have 100 um, people apply, I, I don't think that only 10 um, are selected. I think that they, they have a, a lower bar, and that's not acceptable. So what has to happen is there have to be better recruitment practices, there has to be better training. I was quite um, uh, annoyed to see that the training is about two weeks long, it's gone up to six weeks. I still don't think that that's acceptable. I think it should be closer to 12 weeks, three months of Who training. Who needs training to stop children from participating in a fight club? No, I, the, the fact of the matter is that there were staff present. That is unacceptable and, and you know, those staff have been um, stood down, that has been dealt with, but the fact, the fact is, is that it shouldn't happen. The staff shouldn't be, you know, that's just unacceptable and there needs to be better recruitment of people and there needs to be better training. Quote, let me say that the fight club situation is an absolute debacle. It is a fiasco, it is a shambles and it is an embarrassment, not only for this minister but also for the government. Those were your words exactly eight years ago today after the Circo Fight Club incident. D does the same description apply? There's a, a big difference. At the time, the government then, the national government, were trying to privatise away their responsibilities. What I'm saying is this has happened. I accept it's happened. The, my responsibility is to make sure it doesn't happen again. But those were adults. These are children. Isn't that worse? Yeah, but the, and like is, I say... Is it worse? It's children. Oh, it, it's terrible. Any violence is terrible. But, the, but I mean, the, that was a scathing assessment from you in opposition when it came to adults participating in an MMA-style fight. These are children under your watch. Yeah, and the national government tried to privatise away their responsibilities. I'm saying this has happened. Maybe privatisation would mean a higher standard of employees when it comes to Wauranga Tamariki, because clearly the employees at the moment are not meeting the grade. Yeah, well, the big thing is they did try to privatise away their responsibilities. I'm stepping up and saying this is my responsibility and we're going to fix it. Do you agree that it's a debacle? Oh, it, it's terrible. You know, and uh, a, you, know, you, you go through yeah. a range of emotions from um, anger in the first instance, sadness, uh, that these young people, they shouldn't be experiencing that and it, and it has happened. Two Oranga Tamariki staff were removed from residences last month over separate allegations of inappropriate sexual behaviour. Did you miss warning signs? And, and as I've said, you know, there needs to be better recruitment uh, uh, practices. When the first instance happened, it was dealt with, so, uh, so the person was stood down, there was an investigation. Within about eight days in a separate residence, totally unrelated, there was a similar thing. We said... That's it. We need to get in and, and see what is going on here. We need to make sure that it's dealt with. And what we've done is, is we've said to people, you need to, uh, 
you need to come out of, of you need to actually disclose if you're seeing that things have happened and there have been um, more disclosures the the big thing is is that we're dealing with it and staff are now feeling for the first time in years I've been told that they can come forward and that their concerns will be heard so you've set up an independent review after the big Oranga Tamariki Advisory Board review in 2021, you were forceful in your language. Quote, I'm going to be a bit of a bulldozer, you said. The time for talk and the time for reviews has ended. Two years on, you've just commissioned an independent review. Yeah, and this is into the specif specifically into yeah. the youth justice residences because I am not happy at what has been going on and the, the but, slow but isn't the rate of change. the time for reviews and the time for talk had ended, we thought. Yeah, and... And as so, we're not just waiting for the end of the review. There are changes that are happening as we go along, as we as things are coming up. So, what di what didn't you understand when you said that the time for reviews was over two years ago? Yeah, well, it, it's disappointing that we've had to go and in, look into this. I, you know, and I will admit it that it's disappointing. Yeah, what didn't you understand then when you when you said that? Well, we didn't realise um, what was happening in the youth justice residences. That's why Mike Bush has been appointed. No one can um, dispute his integrity. He's a person that is focused on the on the role, the job, and is getting in. And and as I say, uh, as things come to light, they are being addressed. But no doubt he'll come out with his full conclusions, and we'll address those as well. This week, you announced two new youth justice facilities. You don't have a cost. You don't have a timeline. You don't have locations. You don't have a business case. Is that good policy making? So the problem in New Zealand's youth, one of the problems in youth justice residences here in New Zealand is that there is no continuum of care. So if a young person comes in, regardless of their needs, there's a one size fits all. What we're saying is there needs to be uh, a continuum where higher needs are looked after. So what we're talking about is so I was in a youth justice residence yesterday, there are five units. What we're saying is that there could be a sixth unit there that is physically is designed better. There has been no investment in our um, youth justice residences for the last 20 years. In Australia, they sort of invest every decade or so. Uh, so the physical unit needs to be better designed, but the model of care looking after it, it needs to be is more therapeutic, if I can use that word, to make sure that those young people with the highest of needs are looked after. That wasn't my question, though. Is it good policy making? To, to come out with a plan that isn't costed, doesn't have a business case, doesn't even have a location. So that's what we're saying. There will be a business plan done. <laughs> but is it good it. policy making? I mean, clearly, law and order and youth crime in particular is a major concern for the public right now. We're three months from the election. A lot of people will look at this with a pretty cynical view and say, here is a government scrambling to look like it's acting, when actually it doesn't have any real plans, any real concrete plans for these new facilities. No, well, that's not true. I mean, okay, how much? Cost. Clearly, there is a need. Well, that's what I'm saying. There needs to be a business plan. Where will they be? Well, we're saying one in Auckland, probably at Kōrowai Manaki, probably. and one, one in Christchurch at uh, Te Punawai. So one with probably 20 beds and one with 10 beds. But what is clear is that there is no continuum of care, that there is no model for those young people with higher needs. Filming a RAN raid for social media will be an aggravating factor at sentencing. What is the purpose of changing that law? So there was a bit of a gap. Um, oh, well, filming and posting on social media, well, we know that, um, that 
yeah, there, there is an element of notoriety, uh, and then so there was there needed to be a disincentive for filming and encouraging so, other so people. So it's a deterrent. Well, we what we don't want is it's people to be right? to be advertising what they're doing and right. encouraging so, other so people. So it's a deterrent, though. That, that's the purpose no, of this law. Yes, the deterrent factor. So, so, so describe to me the mindset of a 15-year-old considering this deterrent. Someone who's prepared to steal a car with their mates, crash it into a store, rob the store and post that on social media. Yeah, but it, no, explain, explain to me how this will work, how the deterrence will work. Well, so it's not just for 15-year-olds, it's for anybody. But, uh, but I mean, let's be honest, teen, teenagers are the ones we're concerned about committing ram raids, right? So, so explain to me how that deterrence works. Well, there, there is the deterrent factor. So those young people will then, if they are, um, you know, are caught posting online, there will be a consequence, and that's what the communities want to see. I understand that, but they don't care the about the consequences at the moment, do they? So, so I, I want to imagine how this, changing the law, is going to change the mindset of a young person who might be considering committing a ram raid. Explain to me their mindset well, in considering this. Well, we know that they are impulsive, we know that they do things, but if, if it does impact on some people, some young people, they go, well, I, I need to be careful here then you know, we're, we're having some impact. You're introducing a law as a deterrence for criminals whom you say are impulsive. Yeah, correct. Yeah, like, but that, this is the thing. There will, there will be some impact on some people. It's not going to impact on everybody. If, if um, anybody committed a crime, thought, oh, there is, uh, I may get caught or whatever, they wouldn't commit crimes. You know, so some people aren't... So deterrence doesn't work, is what you're saying? Well, there, there needs to be um, some consequence for doing something. Mm. Uh, and that goes with any crime. In opposition, you called on Corrections Minister Sam Lutuinga to resign. We've seen fighting at youth justice facilities. We've seen repeated incidents of those in youth justice facilities breaking out. We've seen recent allegations of sexual misconduct in Oranga Tamariki facilities, despite similar warnings being made in previous reports. If you thought that the previous national minister should resign, are you holding yourself to the same level of accountability? There's a big difference as I'm stepping up and recognising and acknowledging that there are issues, be they in corrections, be they in Oranga Tamariki, and saying that we will um, address those issues, uh, which is a bit, lot different from trying to privatise away uh, your responsibilities and not addressing them. We are addressing these issues. They, both of my portfolios are very heavy portfolios. When something goes wrong, they do go quite wrong, and, but it's a matter of saying we know that stuff is possibly going to happen, we need to address it when it does happen, not shy away from, from, uh, from our responsibilities in fixing things. That is Minister Kelvin Davis. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call it or mine. These are our main platforms. You can email us, you can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. Up next, Shane Reti has been riding shotgun with ambulance crews across the country. What did the experience tell him about the state of our emergency care? Kia ora, welcome back. National has announced it'll develop a new med school at Waikato University and set up a bonding scheme for new nurses and midwives to keep them in New Zealand. Over three months, the party's health spokesperson Shane Deity has shadowed ambulance crews across the country to get a first-hand look at the pressures facing our health system. 
Shane Beatty, kia ora, good morning. Tanakwe, Jack, thank you for having me. What did you learn and what will you do about it? Jack, before I come to that, can I, I enjoyed the last interview you had. Um, can I just say, I'm not sure I heard the word victim uh, in any of that interview uh, across the transcript. And we, we might want to look back, but I think a discussion like that oh, probably... He did, to no, to, to be totally... He did the very first answer, the very first words he said, he acknowledged the victim. So maybe okay, that was something... OK, so that's, that's really important. But look, yeah. thank you. What you're pointing out here, it was, it was important to me that I had a better understanding of what the frontline looked like after dark mm. in health. And so I wanted to see what the needs for New Zealanders were after hours... Um, where primary care was after hours, where our ambulance services were and what our emergency departments looked mm. like after hours. And so um, for a period of three months, roughly every weekend, mm. um, I participate in an overnight shift with an ambulance in all of the major ambulance stations all the way across the country. And um, that gave me a hands-on look with the front line as to what's working and what's not working. And, and I have some observations. Uh, first of all, uh, it wasn't clear to me in large parts of New Zealand where the primary care team is, the after-hours primary care, and, and they're working really hard. Mm. And this is a feature of not having enough doctors, of the being exhausted and tired anyway, but there were parts where I might have expected primary care to have an after-hours service that wasn't, and that, that's something that needs to be looked at. Secondly, our ambulance services are marvellous. They are so skilled. Mm. I mean, they have something called an advanced care uh, a paramedic who can actually suture in the home. Mm. Actually, almost like a, a general practice practice nurse who can go into the home and deliver. We, mm. we need more of them. Also struck me that they're probably gap-filling the system after hours mm. at, at night. They're filling in the gaps uh, when they happen. And then, of course, our emergency departments, oh, my goodness, uh, they're working really hard. Mm. Uh, those folks who turn up every single day knowing they're probably going to be understaffed and under-resourced, but they turn up to provide that emergency care. Mm. Big shout-out to them. But this was my observation. I, I was ramped myself in an ambulance, which means we, we sit in the car park as a waiting room, effectively, uh, for a period of time, which means we're not out in the community servicing the community. So all of these observations inform the policy um, mm. that I might be privileged to, to have an influence over. And what this talked about was we do need to figure out where primary care sits after hours. Mm. Who does what? How is that appropriately remunerated, first of all? Uh, secondly, very keen for scope extension for our paramedics, for our ambulance staff, uh, how they can do more and they're willing to do more. How do we help you do that? Mm. And then thirdly, our emergency departments, we need to resource them. I'm very concerned that that's one of the parts of the mm. health system, along with age residential care, that's going to break sometime soon. Right. I think everyone agrees this is clearly a well-intentioned exercise. Are you familiar with the Code of Rights which informs medical care in New Zealand? Oh, sure, I'm familiar with, with general rights and privileges. So, so <laughs> right, right seven is the right to make an informed choice and give informed consent. So, so did all of the patients you observed give informed consent oh, to your so being there? I, I was completely compliant with uh, St John's procedures and policies. So I was but, an but observer. But rather than St John's, uh, you're, uh, you're an observer, right? But, but I, I, was, I was a formal observer. Whatever yeah. their policies were, uh, I was compliant but, with. No, and no, but so that, they decided which crew I would be with and, and which ambulance. Yeah. And so I was completely compliant. So, so did all of those patients you observed give informed consent uh, to your I, being there? I participated completely with St John's policy. But, but, but back, I think, back to my question, though, sorry. But, did did uh, all of... Hang on a second. Just, just did all of the patients... You observe, give informed consent to your being uh, there. St John's applied their policy uh, in every single instance that I was but there. But you're familiar a with right seven, right? This is, I mean, I, it may seem like a minor thing, but it is, I mean, the right to privacy is fundamental when it comes to uh, the, the administration of, of, of medical care in New Zealand. You've described people in a diminished state, people suffering mental health crises, people suffering uh, drug overdoses. A critical part of giving informed consent is being in a capacity to do so. Mm. 
And, and those uh, people uh, clearly weren't in the capacity oh, to I was do a host so. of St John's. I was what's called an observer. So I was another pair of hands. No, uh, no I understand. So what, what, but, but whatever their policies were, I was 100% compliant. But surely no, the no, but it's thing not here the, no, no, is, no, the, is the message, not the messenger. No, no, no. I, 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 I do we, agree the message is important. I do. I agree the message is important. But is it also not a concern that someone with your experience would arguably ride roughshod over the right to patient oh, no, privacy. Uh, what I saw here, I was another pair of hands um, when St John's needed me to. Shane, mm. can you grab the 12 lead? Uh, Shane, what do you think about this ECG? I was another pair of hands, just like any other observer. Uh, any other observer who participates in St John's uh, follows their policies. That They're really strict on that. National remains intent on delivering tax cuts at the election. <laughs> Will you commit to increasing health funding in real terms? Uh, what you've seen Chris Luxon say is that the two portfolios that will receive new money will be health and education. How much? Oh, I don't know that number. Uh, I mean, you'll see our, our pre-election mm. uh, manifesto, a fully funded fiscal plan, uh, but those are statements that the leader has made. Staffing is obviously a massive yeah. issue right across the board. So National wants to develop a new med school, University of Waikato. In the short term, though, you say we will have to rely on attracting new health force workers to New Zealand. Is there anything you would do differently in terms of our immigration policies to mm -hmm. the current government in order to do so? Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. There's several parts to that. Uh, we'll start taking new students into Waikato in 2027 and graduating 2030. That, that's a that's long, a long term. That's a long term yeah, plan. Yeah. In the short term, we are going to need to rely on immigration settings. And we made an announcement around nurses and midwives saying there'd be a special visa. They could come into New Zealand for six months without needing a job offer, bring their family, uh, have work and study rights. So we do need to adjust those settings. We wouldn't have left it so long to have a day one pathway to residency mm. for nurses. Everyone was calling out for that and suddenly there was an epiphany uh, before mm. Christmas. So we would have done that different. I think there's another pool here we need to remember. What about retention? Those who are already here, those who are registered in Australia and might, might look mm. over there, how do we keep them here? How do we fill the holes in what we currently have? And there's generally two buckets to that. There's wages and salary and terms and conditions. Mm. Those are the sort of the two levers uh, that you can pull. So I'd suggest, yes, we are going to be reliant on immigration in the short term, but how do we retain people here as well? So, so to be clear, would you guarantee health workforce staff in New Zealand rate, uh, uh, remuneration increases above the rate of inflation? Uh, that's a decision that we'll make once, if we're privileged to be government, mm. um, we, we come in, we look at the books and we, we see uh, what's in what's in. Right, the but that's critical, uh, right? I mean, if, 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 if remuneration is key to keeping the health workforce here, mm. then you've got to pay them more, right? Mm. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, about equity, because I know that mm -hmm. that is a subject taking up a lot of debate in this election campaign. Mm -hmm. Should a health system give people exactly the same care or... Within reason, should it aim to give people the same health outcomes? Oh, it's an interesting question. Uh, I think it should look for the same level of care that generate the same level of health outcomes, if you like. And, of course, the discussions that have been here at the moment uh, and what's really topical and what, what we hear those across the House talk about is the postcode lottery when they talk about mm. equity. I want to talk to that for a moment because there's been two examples, one I think where they got it wrong mm. and one I think recently where they probably got it right. And the first example where they got it wrong was last year where they said, everyone who's been waiting on a waiting list more than 12 months, you're going to receive surgery. Mm. Yeah. What you had was like people in South Canterbury who had a, a low what's called a CPAC score, mm. prior, a clinical priority assessment criteria, which is how you prioritise mm. surgical mm. lists. They got their surgery done because they'd been waiting more than 12 months. White Matar, they had a much higher need score uh, and you know, they had to wait yeah. uh, because they weren't in that 12-month category. So that policy actually perpetuated the postcode yeah. lottery. Where they got it right, I think, was recently, about 10 days ago, when they announced the cataract uh, policy. And what they said was, 
Everyone with a CPAC score of 46, mm. no matter where you are, you'll get surgery. That's how it should I'm be I'm glad you've raised the, the, the surgery prioritisation because you slammed the use of a tool mm. that is being Equity used to, to, mm. to prioritise surgery waiting lists, for which <coughs> one of many considerations was a patient's ethnicity. Mm. To be clear, are you opposed to all forms of ethnic prioritisation? Uh, I'm opposed to anything that doesn't have health need regardless of your ethnicity, health need as the first priority. And if we look at the equity adjuster, there were other measures right. of, of ethnic inequities in that. There was uh, rurality, there was uh, debt levels, there were other measures. Mm. And if you look at some of the specialist groups, for example, the Association of General Specialists, mm. they also, general surgeons, they also struggled with the ethnicity component to that adjuster. Right. So, and, so, and, and so, how does it work? Does right. understand? But, 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 but I mean, sometimes, unless you're going to go through every single tiny little um, element that might make up need, and there can be so many different dimensions, right, then, then ethnicity is actually an umbrella arm of assessing someone's level of need, is it? Not? No, no, just use a CPAC score. Uh, that's what they did with the cataract surgery. Right, it's so just your clinical priority yeah, assessment. Right. Use, use that. So, so, so to be clear, do you oppose if you if you oppose the use of an ethnicity um, distinction in that score? Do you oppose Maori being eligible for free flu jabs? So what we've said is that the first criteria, and we always need mm. to come back to this, and it actually talks to mm. what I said, the postcode lottery as well, health need must be the first classifier for how we distribute health resources. Now, underneath that, of course, Māori have the highest need in, in, in almost any other right. uh, domain that you want to talk about, but you must start with health need okay, first. So and, and so what we saw with that equity adjuster was it was unnecessary to have ethnicity. You had other measures so, 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 that so, would measure so, that. So should Māori get free flu jabs if non-Māori do not get flu jabs? No, that wouldn't be jabs. a policy that I would be, be comfortable with. Well, that's with. the current policy, that, so will you scrap that? That wouldn't be. I will be scrapping any policies that do not have health need okay. as the first criteria, and we've been so, very clear so, on so, Māori, Māori uh, receive uh, free bowel cancer screening earlier than non-Māori. So will you also oppose that? Uh, what we'll need to do is we'll need to see uh, where the trends are going, because they're actually almost equivalenting a Māori and non-Māori for bowel cancer at the moment. But that first principle of health need mm. is how we should distribute health but, resources. But there is a potential is, is that under, under, uh, under a potential future national government, you will be scrapping free flu jabs for Māori and pairing back the free bowel cancer screening for, for Māori. Uh, anything that doesn't have health need as its first principle will be a problem for me. So, but we can achieve other goals mm. uh, with targeting and other means. So that doesn't mean that my eyes are not off mm. those inequities at all, but that first principle has to be health need. New research from Otago University says alcohol is New Zealand's most harmful drug. Do you agree with that assessment? Look, I think uh, volumetrically wise, probably yes. I would still say meth as anyone. If I look mm. at Peter Dunn's drug uh, index, uh, his health, his drug harms index, it pointed clearly to meth as having greater impact by itself. Mm. But I think if you look at the volume consumed, probably alcohol. Well, we, I suppose that the, the, the research from Otago University looked at the different dimensions of harm, right? So there's the harm to the individual, harm to family, harm to community, impact on violent crime, for example. Did you see much alcohol harm when you were in ambulances? I did, actually. Yeah. Yes, I did. So the government has reprioritised its plans to consider alcohol advertising reform. What would you do about it? So uh, in a very general direction of travel, uh, we think there are some behaviours that we have that beget conditions that are problematic. For example, alcohol, smoking, exercise, mm, mm. mental health, diet. That's, that's really specific, Specifically about alcohol harm, what would you do to reduce alcohol harm? So uh, I think education is a key part of that. In fact, I have a, I have a policy which you're just going to mm. have to hold your breath on, uh, which I'm bursting to share with everyone, uh, which will attend to part of this. 
but uh, education is a really key factor uh, for I mean, alcohol I mean, experts reduction. Experts say, that, say that the, the, thing, the single thing we could do that would make the most impact in the short term is reform alcohol marketing and advertising laws. Is that something you would support? No, look, it's something that we would explore, but we already took a position. Remember, well, we had it's a been bill, explored so uh, we, many we times. We had a bill come it, to the House and we took a position on that, if you right. recall. Yeah. And, uh, and what we said it was that that uh, nexus, that relationship to sport, probably wasn't going to work for us. So we've had a position there already. We still believe that education is fundamental uh, to reducing sure. alcohol. So, so to be 100% clear here, you would you oppose alcohol marketing and advertising in sport. Yes, that's what we did oppose. And, and you continue to oppose that? As it was stated in this bill, uh, yes, we didn't see it was going to be uh, effective. So it was going to cause under problems. a national government, could a beer company sponsor the All Blacks? Uh, we disagreed with the bill as it was written. There were parts of it. We have challenges linking or removing uh, alcohol so, advertising um, yeah, so what, what, just to just be t totally clear... I mean, why just focus on sport? Why, why not remove it from other things? But because sport has a huge cultural impact oh, well, and, and, and it attracts audiences well. from... OK, so, so do, do you oppose... What other restrictions would you place on alcohol So this is where we said this bill particularly... Uh, no, but what's your position now? Bill. Our position now is that we think education is absolutely critical But I'm asking about advertising. I, I mean, experts say the thing, the, the thing that we would do in the short term that would make the biggest change is, is reforming alcohol marketing and advertising. The government was looking at it, then they reprioritised it. So I want to know exactly what you would do. We will always re-explore it. Right. Uh, we'll never want to be a closed mind to anything, actually. Uh, but here at this point in time, uh, alcohol and sport advertising wasn't something we supported through this bill. But we'll always keep an open mind. Under a national government, could a beer company sponsor the All Blacks? Um, that's somewhat of a hypothetical here at the moment, but again, pointing back to this bill, which we had a view on, uh, we weren't supportive of the bill mm. that was looking to remove that nexus. Would you change anything about the Pharmac model? Oh, I've got challenges with Pharmac. Uh, I think there's problems with Pharmac. For example, if we look, break Pharmac into two parts, registration and the funding of mm. medicines, yeah? If we look at the registration part, uh, we take roughly twice as long to register medicines mm. as anyone else. Why would we do that? I mean, countries that we bioequivalate with that we think are, are really strong mm. and robust in their regulations, like TGA in Australia and the UK, uh, they register products, mm. and then we reinvent the cycle and do the same again. So for, on the accelerated pathway, they register in 200 days, we register products in 400 days. And I want to give you a solution here to that. Part of a solution may be that in Australia, it's in legislation that you have to regulate or have to regulate or register a medicine within 255 days, mm. and so they do. I think we probably need to move towards that. So that's the registration component. The funding component, as opposed to <coughs> just saying if Australia registers it, we can register it too. No, I want to change. We can't it. just piggyback. It. Well, yeah, I think we can. I think okay. we have two. We, we actually uh, accredit six countries internationally mm. and their regulatory bodies uh, through the accelerated pathway, mm. which isn't that accelerated, by the way. That's part of the problem. Mm. And uh, we say if two of those six countries mm. uh, register a product, then we'll accelerate ours. We just don't accelerate it. So mm. we'd probably go for two of the six. So I think that is something that can be done and it may need legislation. The second part is the funding. And uh, Pharmac prioritises funding based on what they call their four factors for consideration, mm. uh, which is cost, which is benefits, which is suitability and health need. 
And, and we need to look a little bit further in that because it's not clear to me that in the health need component, which looks at the impact on the individual, on the whanau, uh, on the community, on the health service, mm. that we're bringing into account all the right attributes we should, and the same in the benefits, the wider benefits to society of this medicine over that medicine. So I, I think it was a piece of work there. I'm not sure we're as fine-tuned as we could be right. when we're prioritising funding. So, so what would fine-tuning look like? What would that Fine-tuning would look like... What would, would, what would an alternative structure look like? Yeah, so, well, maybe an alternative structure, because it may well be that those four factors may or may not still represent the most important ones, right. but with inside those factors, for example, inside the need component, mm. uh, are we sure that we're actually assessing the impact to the family and the community for any given condition, particularly rare disorders? And this is an argument that mm. they make, that the Pharmac model doesn't well take into account, into account that. And I have some sympathies with that. So, so under a national government, if you look to, to reprioritise some of those different factors, if we can call it an algorithm for, mm. for, the, for the sake of argument, there is a possibility that rare disorders would have drugs funded that currently are not funded. It, it's, it's a hypothetical, but there is a possibility if we can fine-tune that algorithm right. so that it better represents the need... But, but that, that would come at, an, at, an ex, uh, at the expense of other drugs, right? Of the funding well, of other drugs. increase the fund, FAMAC budget, which is what we need to do every year. Right. Hey. right. Yeah. OK, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Yeah, great to chat. You too. Uh, National Party's health spokesperson, Dr Shane Abuthi. After the break on Q&A, so Simon Sharma is one of the world's best-known historians, and at a seminal historical moment, he is turning his attention to vaccines. Okimai, welcome back. When the COVID-19 vaccine was first developed, it sparked familiar scenes for many historians. The hope, the fear, the suspicion of other countries and cultural approaches. Humanity has been through the same thing before many times. Historian Sir Simon Sharma has written a new book about how disease has changed the course of human history. Indira Stewart spoke with him and started by asking about the parallels between COVID-19 and smallpox. Yeah, no, you've put your finger on it, absolutely. And I, I wish the parallels weren't so, you know, obvious and resonant, really, but they indeed are. If you think about it, actually, the smallpox inoculation um, was a very hard sell. I mean, it was the first time that people were being asked to believe that by putting some putty poison in their arm, it was likely to prevent them from dying rather than actually expediting their death. It would prevent terrible disfigurement. So it was... It, well, it, it struck people not unnaturally as a kind of odd and risky and dangerous thing to do. And the mistrust of vaccines as uh, a kind of poison rather than something that will save lives, you know, it, it, it still goes on today, actually. And um, uh, it's a very serious problem in American politics, possibly even more serious than it was in, in 18th century England, 18th century France. Um, so, you, you know, I, I'll just add this. Sorry, I've gone on, rambled on a bit. But, uh, you know, the whole book of Foreign Bodies is at the same time a celebration of the extraordinary scientific ingenuity which could, which brought us a vaccine in record time and uh, an admission that human beings are both these the staggeringly ingenious people but also, 
barely evolved cartloads of hysteria, paranoia, and irrationalism, and were both those things in a very, very dangerous time. That's our trouble. I do like uh, one of the sentences I, I saw that had been picked out as well by another um, media outlet, where you say there are no foreign bodies, there are just familiars. Well, I think, as I said, actually, in its very early days, the smallpox inoculation procedure was thought of as... Um, you know, uh, an incredible thing to do because it was known immediately that it actually um, came from people who were not, you know, regular Western Europeans. You highlighted an unsung hero in our history in Waldemar Hafkin, who developed the cholera uh, and plague vaccines. How would you rank his contribution to our human history? Oh, I, I think he really, uh, he was an extraordinary figure, as you suggest. And, um, and until he managed to produce a cholera vaccine, which he actually created at the Pasteur Institute in the first few years of its existence in the early 1890s, it was thought completely impossible that a vaccine against cholera. Up to that point, um, vaccines had been used against rabies pretty much, and there was a beginning of the work against um, against diphtheria as well. But cholera was a kind of mass slaughterer, really. Um, and what was extraordinary about Hafkin, who was an Odessa Jew, he, was, he had an extraordinary political, dangerous political past. Um, he'd armed the Jewish community in Odessa against pogroms. He'd been arrested three times. He'd only been uh, liberated from the prison by virtue of his a pro professorial tutor who had connections in St. Petersburg. So he lived dangerously, though he was a, a shy and modest man in some ways. But he knew that it was no good doing vaccines unless you had a very large and vulnerable population to do clinical trials on. He's the first person to take... Um, he only worked on those who would volunteer in India. So his is an extraordinary story of someone from a deep European culture who you know, takes on a very impoverished and frightened community in India. And he does randomised comparative clinical trial. He has um, uh, a group of prisoners or a group of soldiers or people actually in the slums of Calcutta, and person A gets the vaccine, person B doesn't. So he can reliably measure whether the vaccine is making a difference. What is it about inoculators, vaccinators, um, epidemiologists, even public health servants during pandemics, that they really get under the skin of the public through the pandemic? I mean, we had, you know, in the US there was Dr Anthony Fauci, and in New Zealand we had our very own uh, Dr Ashley Bloomfield, and certainly they were not immune to political backlash during COVID-19. Yeah. Well, I think actually that, it, you know, uh, the nature... Of, of vaccines, which are designed to tell our immune systems that something dangerous is happening to us. Um, and it's it's delivered really just under the skin. It should not be delivered into deep muscle. If someone jabs you very deep, you should, you know, scream and head for your local lawyer or something. It shouldn't happen in that way. <laughs> so it's actually a very delicate little thing. Nonetheless, in the kind of extreme anti-vax world, really, there is something about the kind of penetration of the, you know, the kind of protective covering of our skin, which makes it absolutely ripe for conspiracy theories. It, they see it as a kind of invasion. And it was very interesting to me when, you know, when the hostility to COVID vaccines were at their height, 
drugs which really would not help, but they were things you took orally, like ivermectin, for example, hydroxychloroquine. That seemed to be in some ways psychologically less threatening than something that would actually stab you or jab you. Or I mean, if you think about the vocabulary, in Britain, we call it a jab. In the United States, it's called a shot. So it's a very, very loaded and dangerous kind of way of describing what we know is necessary if, if you're going to escape the worst consequences of getting sick. Yeah, certainly a leap of logic, uh, like as you've described. Uh, but even despite all the evidence throughout history, there's still this underlying fear. Uh, do you understand that fear? Well, I think, in our, you know, we're, we're living in also in a very weirdly paradoxical time. I mean, uh, again, it's rather... Um, the same sort of thing I was talking about a bit earlier, in that, um, you know, knowledge is absolutely crucial. Doing the homework, understanding what an immune system is, should be teaching that in school, really, not to very little kids, but certainly I have grandchildren. I would want them to know the biological basics. But at the same time, we're faced with a kind of tidal wave who, of people who believe in gut instinct. You know, the web encourages do-it-yourself wisdom, and the wisdom may be from conspiracy theorists like QAnon. It may be a wisdom you think you've heard from God himself. Um, wherever you get it, there is a sort of extraordinary sense in which, you know, you explain the science and what you'll get back as an answer will be, well, that's just your opinion. And this is, you know, we're facing so many existential crises, aren't we? You know, ecological, biological, military catastrophe in the Ukraine. We can't really afford to have gut instinct really win the battle against hard-earned knowledge. Our whole survival will depend on knowledge winning. So thinking about the world today, what are the lessons we can draw from COVID-19 and have we learned them? Well, I think actually we shouldn't, for example, you know, again in America and, and not just in America, the discipline of virology is now regarded as sort of un-American, sort of suspicious, some something that was really can be manipulated by the unscrupulous Chinese and so on. We have to really do enough homework. I'm a historian. My wife is a scientist, thank goodness. So she was a fantastic bullshit backstop in case <laughs> I was making a terrible blunder. But she encouraged me really to do the basic homework to understand all the things I needed to do. Once you do, and it really, if I can understand it, millions of others can too, then you know, you know how to trust the science. And you don't necessarily believe all scientists agree with each other all the time. They don't. You don't necessarily say lab leaks never occur. They do occur. But, you know, you, you kind of read the material about um, about infectious diseases, and there will be more COVID-19 epidemics, pandemics, alas, it's absolutely certain around the corner. So we need disciplines like virology so that we can see around the corner and prepare the next generation of vaccines. That's really, really important if we're, you know, to, to get through the um, the ordeal, which it often is for many people. So Simon Sharma speaking with Indira Stewart there. His new book is called Foreign Bodies, Pandemics, Vaccines and the Health of Nations. Hey, our Q&A, stick around. Q&A is back after the break. Kōmutu. That is Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thank you for watching. And namihi kia koutou i Thanks for your feedback and messages. Hey, te wiki. We'll see you next Sunday at 9am.
Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.